sure Jeff, in many respects, uh, different points in our life where we're done with the church, you know? And um, like we haven't figured it all out here. We see all the time we're just a bunch of young punks going after the call and will of God. But there's moments like this where I sit back and I just say, this is church, you know? So it's great to have you here. Um, if you're messed up and feel like you have some struggles in your life, then I want to welcome you. The t-shirts are out in the lobby. Feel free to purchase one. Um, we, all, we, all, we all wear that shirt here. We're desirous to be a community that needs the grace of God, right? Um, I shared with you guys all last summer, and I want to open tonight this way, that God had revealed to me that I, that I didn't know how to pray. Beginning of last summer, um, sitting in, the, in a hot tub with Matt McNeil, my accountability partner, which I know sounds very weird. Um, it was all good, I promise. It's a big, big hot tub. Um, I just confessed to him that after, you know, I've been in ministry really since I was 13, that, that I didn't know how to pray. And so thankfully, uh, God... Um, convicted me and humbled me, reminded me what prayer does, that it brings us to the dust that we are. And it's been an amazing journey since then. And then a good friend of ours, Jake Gregory, got um, hurt badly last fall, early last fall. And we gathered with 500 people to pray. And uh, 500 people, pretty amazing sight all, all together to pray. And I, afterwards, um, I was sitting there thinking to myself, I mean, many different churches represented, sitting there thinking to myself, why is tragedy the only thing that brings us together to pray? And uh, Ron Cathcart, uh, the pastor of Two Rivers, was standing next to me, and he looked at me, and he said, Mark, we need to do this more often. And uh, I said, yes, we do. And after that night, I went home and began to pray about what that means and what that looks like. And out of that was birthed the vision that God has given us to host, be a part of a massive community prayer night. Not an event. We've all been to a prayer event, maybe a prayer breakfast or something the like. Uh, this Friday, the men will gather at the Realm, the youth building behind First Baptist Church of Harvester, with ten other churches, seven o'clock, to do one thing, and that's to pray that God will continue His saving work in and around us. This will not be an event. It's not an outreach event. It's, not, it's a prayer opportunity. And so, man, I want to encourage you all that if it's on your heart at all that God would continue to save those around you and you have a desire to pray that you come and gather. Ten different churches. It's been an unbelievable journey seeing people get excited about uniting to pray for those who don't know Christ. Some of you females are like, so what about us? A week from this Friday, the 23rd, of January, the females will gather at the same place at the same time to do the same thing. Men and women, two back-to-back -back Friday nights, throwing down for God to continue His saving work. Just uh, yesterday, we were meeting with some of the women's ministry leaders of area churches, and I want to tell you this. This is cool. Calvary Church, you guys all know Calvary. They've got like a million people over there, big church off Mid-Rivers. 
their women's ministry leader came, right? And she's like, you know, we're talking about ministry. And she's like, yeah, I ha- we have 400 women in our women's ministry. I was like, that's more than in our church. You know what I mean? But here's what's cool. Is as we all sat around this table, very diverse, and it was me and a bunch of um, ladies that are working in different ministries. She was like, like, I don't care what you guys think about big church, but this, what we're doing, uniting to pray, like this is what our heart is. And so churches from our size to churches Calvary size are going to gather just to pray. So I want to encourage you guys to come. Um, if you don't want to, don't. Like this isn't a, a pressure vite. It's just a, is that a pressure vite? Does that work for invite? I don't know. But I want to pray for us, and, and we're going to dive in tonight to the Word of God. Is that cool, guys? Thanks for coming tonight. Let's pray, okay? Father, um, we ask right now in this moment that you begin to grab our hearts, open them up, reveal our depravity, and cause a tremendous need for you right here, right now. In your awesome name, amen. Uh, March 14th of 2007, we began to study the Gospel of Luke. Quick math, a year and ten months to the day we've been, dra- we've, been, we've been journeying through the Gospel of Luke. Pretty amazing, isn't it? Just give it up for that. Come on, that's incredible. Yeah. Tonight, the end, the grand finale, the fireworks, everything. Tonight, we close up the Gospel of Luke. So we're excited. We have a little nugget to study. And then after that, we're going to try a little bit of an experiment tonight. Are you guys open for a little bit of an experiment? Awesome. You guys are like, what does that mean, right? Am I going to be some rat? You know what I mean? No. No experimental rats this evening. We're going to try something. But first, I need you you guys to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 24, the very end of the Gospel of Luke. Uh, Verse 50 is what we're going to be looking at. Now, last week, as Jesus has now been resurrected from the dead and there's been some amazing things happening, you remember he shows up in this room. Cleopas is there and the disciples are there and they're all excited about what is happening in the resurrection of Christ. And we studied last week the four things that Jesus, if he had last words, which in the Gospel of Luke he does, the four things that he would share with them. And the last two, he says this, the Gospel, repentance and forgiveness of sins, will be preached, he said. And then he said, wait in Jerusalem until power on high comes down and empowers you to be missionaries, the Holy Spirit, if you will. So an amazing moment. They've experienced these words of commissioning from Christ. And then Luke chapter 24, verse 50. And and just beginning to read this passage is going to be a struggle for some of us because we've seen the promise and other dramatizations of this that have done a poor job. Work with me here. Verse 50. When he had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. There's uh, certain blessings that have a tremendous amount of weight. The blessing of Christ. That moment, as he lifts up his hands, which goes back to Numbers chapter 24, an ancient priestly way of giving a benediction, if you will, a closing, a blessing, a prayer. 
Imagine the hands of Christ going up. And what do we, what do we see last week? What's still there? The wounds. As the hands go up, they're reminded and they see the wounds. And He begins to pray. And He begins to bless. And He begins to encourage. He, in Bethany, becomes for them this high priest here and now. Now, Bethany, and we've, I've done this hand motion with you many times. You should be able to do this in your sleep, alright? Temple Mount, right? Temple in Jerusalem. Under the Temple Mount is this place called the Kidron Valley, alright? Like many of you guys have seen me, the Kidron Valley, right? Just up above that is this place called the Mount of, anyone? The Mount of Olives, okay? Now, on the backside of the Mount of Olives, in between a mile and a half and two miles or so, away from the center of Jerusalem, is this place called Bethany. Now, you remember that the last week of Christ, they're retreating every single night to where? The Mount of Olives. So this journey or path is a very familiar one for them, not to mention the triumphal entry. Remember, when Christ is sitting on a donkey, He makes this same path from the Mount of Olives down the Kidron Valley up to the temple. So they've left Jerusalem. They've headed to Bethany, this very close proximity to Jerusalem, and He begins to bless them. Verse 51. Look at this. While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. Now, I can't help but smirk just a touch. Because we in our culture have tried to emulate this moment, right? Have any of you guys seen The Promise or different dramatizations that have tried to do this, right? It's like as if the wires on the Jesus actor back, like as if those weren't, you know, we couldn't see those, you know? All of a sudden, Jesus is talking, you see the stagehands like cranking him up, and all of a sudden, he's like flying, you know? So we get this image of Jesus as this like, whoa, this is crazy, I'm flying up in the air, this is wild, yeah? This moment, which is described more in the book of Acts, which Luke continues to write, by the way, Acts is his second book, this moment, the ascension in Acts is described as this moment where this cloud envelops him. And he's literally taken up right before their eyes. Question is why, right? Like why did God choose that way? Beyond the, all the uh, prophecy, especially in the Gospels that Jesus talks about himself uh, being taken up. Like why that? Why, why that way? Why not just disappear? Right? Like why not God just reach down? We said last week that the blessing of Christ revealing his reality. He does that by what? Eating a broiled fish, Remember? He eats a broiled fish. He shows them the wounds. He says, touch and see, it is I myself. The reason that he does that is because he doesn't want this image of like the epiphany and what we talked about last week, this Yoda type image, right? He doesn't want that. He wants them to know, look, this is me, flesh and blood. This is the Christ. And so as they watch him ascend and not simply disappear, they get this image that He is still with us. He just didn't disappear out of thin air. He went to be where He said He was going to be. And remember, now at this moment, the Scriptures have been opened to the disciples' minds. So all of the prophecy in John 6 times, Jesus talks about going into heaven and sitting at the right hand of God the Father. If the disciples' minds are opened, they now understand that. 
And so to see Christ go from here to here is this image of there He goes to do what He's going to do. To be the Hebrew 7 High Priest. Intercessor. Sitting at the right hand of the throne of God. Could you imagine that moment? Really? Right? I mean, you're a disciple. You're a fisherman or a tax collector by trade. And uh, you've seen some crazy things, especially if you're Peter, James, and John. You saw the transfiguration, right? Peter's like, it's good for us to be here. Should we set up some tents, you know? You've rationalized things all different kinds of ways. And now you watch Christ ascend to heaven. We get this image at the end of the Gospel of Luke the same way that the Gospel of Luke began. The Messiah is coming and has come. He is King. And so if you're a disciple, you have the Scripture in your mind now when Jesus says in the Gospel of John, I must go so that the Counselor can come, the Holy Spirit. And so He goes. Verse 52, Then they worshipped Him. (laughs) Which is awesome, isn't it? Because look, we've seen the disciples react in all kinds of different ways, especially the one I just mentioned. So they've reacted in all kinds of different ways. Finally, this moment brings them to their face. They can't not worship Him. He's ascended. they're, They're drawn into the supernatural act of God and the response is worship. Do you see what shifted in their hearts? When your mind is open to the Scriptures, to the truths of the Gospel, my friends, there is this tug in you that can't not worship. You have to. They worshiped Him and returned to Jerusalem with great... What's the word in your Scriptures? With great joy. Verse 53. And they stayed continually at the where? At the temple praising God. Now I want to put an image in your mind. The Scripture doesn't say this. For those of you guys that remember at the crucifixion, what happens in the temple... Jason brilliantly taught what happens. The curtain tears in in two. So at the temple, with the curtain torn in two, can you imagine the conversations? Right? Like people are trying to justify it in all kinds of different ways. Well, uh, um, someone cut it, right? And I, I forget, Jason, you remember how thick the thing was? It was what, like, yeah, just in, insanely thick, you know? So like trying to rationalize it in all these ways. Listen, if the disciples' minds are open to the Scriptures and they're coming back in the temple to worship, can you imagine some of the things they're able to prophesy to? I can tell you why the curtain's torn in two. Because now we have approach a way into the Holy of Holies through the Son, Jesus Christ, who just ascended into heaven. All of a sudden, this passion, this joy, this energy to communicate the Gospel just begins to burn in, with inside of them and the Holy Spirit hasn't even come down yet for the Pentecost. This is an amazing moment. The Gospel of Luke ends with the picture of Christ not just conquering death, but seated at the right hand of God the Father. Now we've talked about before what that means for you and I. John chapter 14 says that he's preparing a place for his children. Hebrews is riddled with scriptures 
about what Jesus is doing at the right hand of God. He's interceding on our behalf. As we pray through the name of Jesus, Jesus, seated seated closely to the Father, is going and petitioning on our behalf. Praise God that He ascended. What a beautiful picture of the Trinity here. The Holy Spirit's about ready to come. The Father seated on the throne and Christ seated at the right hand as our great intercessor. The Gospel of Luke. Despite many tragic moments, many moments where it would be easy to get discouraged, ends with the Christ headed to where He belonged. Home. And He's waiting to return. You see, many Christians that I talk to still live with this image uh, that he's just up in this heaven in this distant place. No, no, you don't understand. The reason for the death of Christ, one of the reasons for the death of Christ was to give us a way to God, creating this path. Yes, we still fear him in respect, but now we're able to approach the throne of God as we wait for him to come back. And he's coming back. And Acts, Luke's second volume, is packed with individuals who are anxiously awaiting that return. And so we close up the Gospel of Luke, not saying, great book, let's move on. But no, no, no. There's more. There's more Scripture. There's more to hear. There's more to learn. There's more to journey through. And that's what we're going to do tonight. A little experiment. Uh, I have some individuals that have some piece of paper. Uh, can you guys stand up and pass those out for me? If you're one of those individuals, pass those out hurriedly. There's some pens underneath your seats, at least most of them. You're going to need to get out a pen. Get out a pen from your purse, I would suggest. The pens under your seat are office max. Um, no more need to be said there. No offense to office max if any of you guys work there or a manager's, or your dad owns stock, whatever. We bought the cheap ones. I'm, just, I'm not going to lie. So, sitting around thinking to myself, self, how can we uh, close up shop here in the Gospel of Luke? Like if there was one way that we could just finish this off, recap, reteach, relearn, what would we do? Well, what I came up with is, Really what would be good is if we just went through the entire gospel. And so in an experimental form, here's what we're going to do tonight. I'm going to attempt to go through 24 verses from all 24 chapters of Luke in 24 minutes. Okay? Now, this is going to be a tall task. Alright? So I'm going to need you to stay with me. Now, many of you will be like, so so what's the purpose? Why recap like this? I think there's... A, does everyone have one, by the way? Who still needs one? Just raise your hand. Everyone have one? There in the back. There is this great tendency in the church to come and gather as a community and just be challenged on the, on the life scale. In other words, just come, okay, just tell me the things I need to do better and then I leave. Just tell me the things that I need to fix in my life and then we go home. The problem with that mentality is you miss a huge piece of the Scriptures. It's learning who God is. Luke had so many themes that we taught through. Tonight, we're going to share 24 of those themes. And so there's a place under each passage to write a statement. So what we're going to do is I'm going to go through a verse from each of the chapters. Then I'm going to share the statement. 
feel free to jot that down. I'm going to share a little bit about that statement, and then we're going to move on and move on. 24 verses from 24 chapters in 24 minutes. Someone have a stopwatch? I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Verse 1. It's already, what a great start. It's already ready to go. This is in chapter 1, verse 32. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, uh, David. This is an amazing verse. And the, the theme, the Lucan theme that we get for this is the Messiah is coming. Now, let me explain Messiah. For this to be shared with Mary from an angel, for the Messiah to come, do you understand? This is the one that the entire nation of Israel has been waiting on. So when Luke begins to write his gospel. He's writing to a man named Theophilus, who's a Roman official. He begins with, the one coming is the one that we've all been waiting on. The Messiah, the promised one, is coming. And so it's this beautiful image of everything from this point on is going to be building on the fact that the Christ is here. Chapter 2, verse 7 says this, And she gave birth to her firstborn, a son, She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Now, oftentimes, I think we read this verse and just get this romanticized version. But the theme from this verse is this. Look at this. The uh, the king becomes flesh and blood. And he comes in a feeding trough. Jason just did a marvelous job teaching on this. The king, the Messiah, the one that's been promised in the entire Old Testament, comes In a feeding trough. He comes unexpectedly. In an unexpected form. Are you guys with me? So the Gospel of Luke opens with this image that the King is coming, but but He's going to wreck some of your expectations. Some of you have had this image as a Jew of who Jesus would be. Let me tell you something. He's going to be different than than what many of you have been expecting. Chapter 3. Verse 22, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, you are my son, whom I love, with you I am well pleased. Another beautiful image of the Trinity. John the Baptist is baptizing Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes down in the form of a dove, and the voice of God the Father speaks. And the Lucan theme is the Son of God is what? Is God. Now, it's one thing to be seen as a good prophet. And it's another thing for a Roman official to sit back and to understand that this Messiah is not just a prophet or a priest, but he is God. Now, many of us have struggled with thoughts of the Trinity. It's this verse. That gives us a beautiful image of how the Trinity works. Father, Son, Spirit. Chapter 4, verse 18. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because He has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. This is Jesus talking, quoting Isaiah chapter 61. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind to release the oppressed. This is a moment where we pause... And say, Christ, thank you for your mission. Release the oppressed that have been in bondage 
with the, to slavery and sin. Thank you for coming, O Christ. The theme is this. Jesus will fulfill the Scriptures concerning Himself. He's quoting here Isaiah 61, but there are hundreds in the Old Testament. He will fulfill the Scriptures concerning Himself, which is, if you're a Gentile Theophilus and you're, you're reading this and you're trying to understand the Gospel, let me tell you this. You sit back and you say, hold on, if He's going to fulfill the Scriptures, then He has to what? Fulfill them all. So what happens to your belief system when He does? What happens to your faith when everything that you read in the Old Testament about Christ comes true? Happenstance, right? Circumstance, surely not now. He will fulfill all of the Scriptures. Chapter 5, verse 10b, Then Jesus said to Simon Peter, Don't be afraid From now on you will catch men. This is a brilliant moment. Why? Jesus has just started calling the disciples. And what happens? Simon Peter falls on his face and says what? Away from me, I'm a sinful man. You remember that? This is in response to that. Peter's on his face. Away from me, I'm a sinful man. The Lucan theme that we can grab from this is this. Jesus is going to call the disciples to watch, to learn, and to do. Jesus is saying, I am your rabbi now. Follow me. Watch me. Learn from me. Do what I do. And eventually you'll take this yoke that I've taught you and you will establish it and begin to proclaim it. The call for Simon and the other disciples is to watch, learn, and do. And it begins a gospel worth and full of exposure disciple therapy. I love that. Uh, Chapter 6. Verse. Chapter 6. Chapter 6. Chapter 6. Alright, I'm going to read it for you. Chapter 6, verse 5 says this. Up there it is. Then Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Now, this this strikes home uh, very closely to you and I. Because we meet on Wednesday nights. Many of you have asked often, well, why? A big portion of the why is because here at Matthias' lot, we're about restoring integrity to the bride of Christ. And one of the ways that we desire to do that is to be in right rhythm. Learning what the Sabbath is. And you remember what we taught, and the theme is up there, and you can write it down. The Old Testament Sabbath is a shadow to the New Testament Sabbath. In other words, the Old Testament Sabbath, what God establishes with the nation of Israel, that on the the sixth day, on the seventh day of the week, you do not work. Six days is for work. One day out of the week, you rest. He sets up this rhythm. That is but a shadow to when Christ comes and Christ says, Now I am the Lord of the Sabbath. The Sabbath is about me. Now you cease and celebrate me. He turns all the attention to himself, which is still a shadow to Hebrews chapter 4. In Hebrews chapter 4, Scripture talks about the eternal Sabbath. So when Jesus comes and says, I am in the Lord of the Sabbath, he shifts the Sabbath. From the seventh day to celebrating Him, which is why it moves to Sunday, the celebration of the resurrection. Chapter 7, verse 22. I love this. So He replied to the messengers, Go back and report to John, this is John the Baptist, who is in prison, what you have seen and heard. I I remember this passage so clearly. You guys remember this? I remember this moment when when we read this verse. Look, 
The blind will receive sight. The lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cured. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. And the good news is preached to the poor. You guys remember that? Jesus tells John the Baptist, a couple guys that come, and remember, John the Baptist, he says, hey, will you go ask Jesus if he's the one or if we should be looking for someone else? And Jesus says, you go tell him the proof is in the pudding. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. The theme is this, chapter 7, Jesus fulfills prophecy with his actions. (laughs) He's not just walking around talking about being the Messiah. He's revealing the fact that he is the Messiah. He will fulfill the scriptures, and he's proving it to be true. And look at this. It's a Lucan theme because the rest of the gospel, that's what he's doing. Especially when he goes to the cross, conquers the grave, and goes home to be with his father. Chapter 8, verse 52. Meanwhile, all the people were wailing and mourning for her. Stop wailing, Jesus said. She is not dead, but sleep. Look at this. Uh, uh, Jason and I and many, many of uh, the rest of you, we have this uh, kid's Bible. It's called the Jesus Storybook Bible. This story is Avery's favorite because it's about this little girl, Jairus' daughter. You guys remember the story? And, and Jairus' daughter in the, in the picture like shows her laying down and Avery always goes, Daddy, she's sick. And I'm like, yeah. And then we turn the page and it shows, it shows Jesus walking up the stairs and Avery goes, there's Jesus. And I'm like, yeah. And then the next page we, you see like Jesus. And, and Just a brilliant thing. Here's the theme. Look at this. Jesus has the power over life and death. Don't you love this statement? She is not dead, but what? But asleep. (laughs) She's just sleeping. He has the power over life and death. If he has the power over life and death, then the Lucan theme is that he must be God. Because no random teacher, no just prophet has that. Chapter 9, verse 62. Jesus replied, This, by the way, is one of my most memorable uh, messages. You guys remember the story. Jason's on the stage in the high school, and he's holding that plow. Do you guys remember that? Those of you guys that are with us, we were still over at the high school a long time ago, and he's holding on. If you're looking at the stage on the right side, I will, for, I will always remember that moment. I loved it. Look at this. No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. And I remember that night walking away, asking myself the question, do I really trust Him? Do I really trust Him? Or am I constantly hesitant and looking over my shoulder? The Lucan theme is this. Look at this. I love this. The Jesus movement, which is what we'd like to clarify here at Matthias, we're a part of the Jesus movement, not some source or sense of religion, The Jesus movement is not marked by lukewarm followers. Period. We've battled a ton here at Matthias' lot to teach the proper gospel that faith without works is dead. He develops the faith. He empowers the works. But faith without works is dead. For those of you here tonight that are lukewarm, you're saying this, I don't know state, let me tell you something. Followers of Christ put their hands on the plow because he holds our hands on the plow. Chapter 10. How are we doing? The 72 returned with joy. I love this story. The 72 returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. You guys remember this story? This was hilarious because uh, it, it shows us so much. So Jesus sends out the 70 or the 72, depending on what gospel you read. They come back and they're like, Jesus, you'll never believe it. The demons 
submit to us in your name. I mean, I don't know if you would... Unbelievable, right? The Lucan theme is this. Look at this. Jesus chooses and empowers the unlikely for His glory's sake. He chooses and empowers the unlikely for His glory's sake. Have you ever heard of a man named Noah? How about Abraham? How about David? How about Paul? How about Peter? Hey, how about you? He chooses the unlikely because when things begin to happen, it can only turn to himself. He takes men that can't talk, women that without him can't love or mother or encourage, teach whatever, and he takes them, uses them to show and reveal his glory. These 70 are like, even the demon, yeah, I know. Like, I empowered you to see that and to know that. Chapter 11. Then the Lord said to him, Now then, you Pharisees, clean the outside of the cup and dish. Remember this? But inside you are full of greed and wickedness. This is huge. I'll put the theme up here. Outward expressions of religion, if not prompted by inward change through the Gospel and the Holy Spirit, are foolish. In other words... Look, if you're just coming and expressing some outward version of the gospel, but inwardly have not been changed, then what are you doing? It's completely foolish. The gospel hasn't taken root in your life. All you're doing is walking around and you're acting. You're a poser. The Jesus movement is not marked by posers. It's marked by people who have been changed on the inside and the fruit then is shown on the outside. This is Jesus' problem with the Pharisees. Outwardly, you look amazing. Inwardly, I see right through you. Chapter 12. You also must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect Him. Now, this is at a point in the Scripture, and later we'll see this, especially in the wedding banquet, when Jesus says, be ready and dressed for service. You guys remember the marriage banquet, right? Be at the door waiting. So when your master goes to the wedding banquet and comes back and knocks on the door, you're ready to what? Open the door. You need to be ready because he's going to come back. Put the theme up there. He will return like he came unexpectedly. Now, I don't want to confuse you with the he came part. Because you're right. Some people knew it because of prophecy. But people weren't expecting the way that he would come or how that he would come or the message that he would bear when he came. So he will return like he came unexpectedly. And it was about this moment that Jesus started the travel narrative headed towards Jerusalem from the Sea of Galilee. And it was at this moment in the Gospel of Luke, and you guys remember this, this you know, about a year ago, when things seemed to get urgent. Look, let me encourage you with something, church, now as we're halfway through this journey. As we look back and reflect on the Gospel of Luke, is the urgency still there? The sense when you walk in this room like it's now or no, and your heart beats fast because you know that it could be any moment when he returns. Is that urgency still breathing on your lips? Is it there? Chapter 13, verse 19. It is like a mustard seed, he's talking about the kingdom of God here, which a man took and planted in his garden. It grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air 
perched in its branches. You guys remember this? The two windows, right? We had the green window over here that I found in my basement. And the green window over here. And we were talking about the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the air. There's only two kingdoms. If you're not serving the kingdom of God, then you're serving the enemy. Who Ephesians calls as the leader of the kingdom of the air. He says the king. Well, put the theme up here. The kingdom of God is not yet consummated. This was a huge theme because there were many Jews who thought that when Christ returned, when He came in Messiah form, that the kingdom of God had now reached its consummation. Problem is, when Jesus was talking about the kingdom of God, it was this phrase. It's like a mustard seed. It's Yes, it's here, but it's not yet. You remember how we phrased that? The kingdom of God is now... Fulfilled in Christ, but it's also not yet. When He returns, the kingdom comes. Alright? Kingdom of God itself was a huge Lucan theme. Chapter 14. In the same way, this is one of my favorite uh, of all the Gospel of Luke, by the way, this, this chapter. In the same way, any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. In, in this short passage, when he's talking about the cost of being a disciple, he says three times, this If this isn't true, then you cannot be my disciple. You remember the first one? He says, unless you deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me, you cannot be my disciple. Then he says, unless you give up everything. And then the third time he says the same thing. Unless you give it all up, you cannot be my disciple. The huge looking theme here, and I want to talk through this with you. To follow Jesus, all must be loosed from your grip. Now, I use the word grip Poignantly. Why? When we were teaching Peter and Matthew specifically, many of you will remember what we shared about those two individuals. When Jesus calls Peter, Peter is holding on to the fishing net. To follow Christ would mean that he would have to let go of his grip of the fishing net. Matthew was a tax collector. Matthew would have to loose the grip on the coin that he had in his hand, the desire for more wealth, for selfish means, he would have to let go of that grip to follow Christ. Friends, to be a follower of Jesus, everything must be loosed from your grip. Chapter 15. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep. Quick break. Any of you? Right? Any sheep herders here? Okay, wonderful. Thank you for that sheep. Is that, that's, I sound a little more like a lamb, Josh. Right? Suppose uh, one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Does he not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? Now many of you will remember this night. This was the night that we passed out the scripture and we studied it by asking the questions. You guys remember that? And we walked through the passage. This was a huge night for theology. Why? Because sheep are dumb. <laughs> scripture says that we... Like sheep have all gone astray. Sheep do not come back to the shepherd. Okay? A sheep doesn't get lost and start prancing around and sniff the shepherd and all of a sudden find him. You know how the parable ends? The shepherd goes after the sheep and eventually puts the sheep on his back and then takes the sheep back to the herd. Are you guys with me? The theme is this. Jesus is the pursuer and the Good Shepherd. Jesus is the initiator for salvation. It's His saving work. 
He goes after the lost. He puts the lost sheep on his, so- on his shoulders. And he brings them back to the pen because we, like sheep, have all gone astray. Now listen to this. I was teaching this a passage at a, a FCA leadership conference. And afterwards, I had this student that came up to me. And they're like, so you're telling me that, that like all this, it's all about Christ? Like he's, it's, yeah. As Theophilus is reading this gospel, can you imagine reading this and connecting that to Christ? As you're trying to break in your mind that somehow I can do some good things that will get me to Jesus, when the image of this parable is, he goes and gets you. He's the good shepherd. Chapter 16. No servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. I explicitly remember this teaching because it was a tough night. Uh, Jason brilliantly taught, this is the shrewd manager. You guys remember that? It's like, that's a tough teaching because it's kind of this weird, like the shrewdness of the money and how to use it. Jason did an amazing job of teaching this theme. Nothing can compete with God to be his follower. You can't serve two masters. Nothing can compete. Right now, for some of you, it's a boyfriend, a girlfriend isn't just competing, is winning. A job, alcohol, sex, whatever it is. You guys see this word? Nothing can compete. Nothing. What's competing with you? Your doubts? Your self-righteousness? Your abuse issues? Nothing can compete. He, and He alone, sits on the throne. Amen? Chapter 17, verse 3. If your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. I love this night. You remember this. Soon after this, what do the disciples say? Lord, increase our... Remember this? Lord, increase our faith. Because He's teaching on forgiveness, and it was right after this when He was like, look, if that doesn't... Like, you have to keep forgiving. And the disciples are like, are you kidding me? Lord, increase our faith. Now, I love this about Christ, and I hope this will be an encouragement to you. Put up a theme here. Jesus came as the Messiah to restore everything, including relationships. Because of who we are as people, it seems like relationships don't get put under that restoration by Messiah category, right? Those are too great for you to conquer. Let me encourage you. For many of you, it's, it's with a parent, to be honest. For many of you, if it's not a parent and you're a believer in this room, it's another believer. Look, it's time to reconcile. It's time to believe that He is the Messiah and the restore of all things. Do you believe that? Why aren't we asking and pleading with him to restore everything about us? Next chapter, 18. Verse 39 says this, Those who uh, led the way rebuked him and told him to be quiet. (laughs) Remember this blind Bartimaeus? Jesus is headed from uh, the Sea of Galilee and he stops in Jericho and he meets up with this guy, blind Bartimaeus. Do you guys remember this? But he shouted all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. Remember this? So you got the blind guy who's on the side of the road. 
And he hears that Jesus is coming. And he starts shouting, Son of David, have mercy on me. And a bunch of people near him are like, Bro, calm down. But he shouted all the more. This needs to be some encouragement for us tonight. I put up the theme, the poor and needy cannot be silenced. Problem is, many of you have not recognized that you're poor and needy. Depraved. Without Christ, you're nothing. When you understand that you're poor and needy, you can't be silenced. Listen, listen to this. When you understand that you're poor and needy, you cannot be silenced. Because everything that you have is going to be given to you. Are you with me? When you're poor and needy, when you recognize that you have nothing apart from Him, that you recognize that He is everything. Chapter 19. Doing pretty good on time. I tell you, he replied, if they kept quiet, the stones will cry out. You guys remember this. Now look at this. If, if you haven't been with us, triumphant, really the non-triumphant entry. Jesus is on a donkey coming down the Mount of Olives through the Kidron Valley. And people start saying what? They start saying, great is God, right? I mean, they start exclaiming the glory of Christ. And the Pharisees come up to Jesus and they're like, hey, shut your people up. Rebuke them. And what does he say? Um, problem with that is if they get quiet, the stones are going to cry out. Here's the, here's the theme. Look at this. Uh, the creator must be worshipped by creation in the purest, truest sense of worship. It's this deep, profound connection between creator and creation. Hey friends, do you understand that you're poor and needy, created with a need to want and desire to know something that's better and truer through the gospel of Christ. Mm. Chapter 20, look at this. He said to them, Then give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. This was a tricky one, another tough night. Um, many of you I've heard after this have just said that randomly, right? We've been talking in conversation. You've been like, well, give to Caesar what's Caesar's, you know? Here, here's the theme. And this was tough, and followers of Christ are to be submissive until submission goes against Scripture. Followers of Christ are to be submissive until submission goes against Scripture. In other words, we are to follow the laws of the land until the laws of the land do not cooperate, coordinate, follow the things of Scripture. And in that case, it's follow Scripture. This is a tough night in understanding how we deal with government, politics, and this came... Um, this teaching came up right around the time of the election and things. And um, this is a tough passage and one that we're continuing to wrestle with. Chapter 21 says this. Heaven and earth will pass away. He's talking about the signs at the end of the age. But my words will... What's the word? Never pass away. Uh, here's the theme. The teachings of Jesus are Eternal. They're not going anywhere. They're eternal. Every word from the mouth of God breathes and screams and whispers for an eternity. I love it. Chapter 22, a couple more chapters. In the same way, this is an amazing, amazing uh, understanding for us. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup saying, this is the cup in the new covenant in my blood which is poured out for you. Do you guys remember this? 3,000 years of history. 
taking the Passover just like you've taken it every single time. And in one sentence, he changes everything and says, this is now about me. Put up the theme. Christ, and I'm sorry this is a long one, Christ is the old promise fulfilled in a new covenant. In other words, Christ was the promise from the beginning. Christ wasn't an afterthought. Christ is, an, is the old promise fulfilled in a new covenant. The new covenant that is now going to be brought about because of His blood. Redemption now comes through Christ. If you're a Theophilus reading this Gospel, this is a huge moment in understanding the purpose of Jesus. Chapter 23. Jesus answered him, I tell you the truth. Today, you will be with me in paradise. This is what he told to the thief on the cross. Continuing his saving work here and now. And the theme is this. Christ alone has the power to save. Not you. Not your righteous deeds or righteous acts. But Christ proves on the cross as His blood drips down that He and He alone has the power to save. Stop, please, trying to save yourself. It will never work and never happen. Only through Christ. Chapter 24. I think we did it. That was weird. Was, was that not weird for anyone else? It would have been great if it would have hit me in the back of the head and like, wow. Okay. I'm not sure what you do after that, right? It's like we just caught, kind of call it a night there, you know? No, I'm just kidding. Uh, chapter 24. Uh, this is it here. Verse 7 says this. The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. This is when the women came to the tomb to put um, spices around the body of Christ and two men who looked like lightning come up to Him. And here's the theme from chapter 24. Jesus was born to die and died in obedience for His people to live. He was born to die. That was His purpose from the beginning. And He died in obedience from the call of His Father for His people to live. Those that He would call by name. 24 amazing chapters. And my hope is this. Is that this piece of paper that you now hold becomes a resource for you. Not just to look back and to ask all the personal questions that look at your motives and what you need to work on better, but a resource that you can better learn and understand the Scriptures. Now, to close up, how many of you guys remember what book we studied before the Gospel of Luke? Genesis. It was a tough task uh, for Jason and I, being young dudes, tackle 50 chapters in a book where there's rape, incest, and murder. It was tough. A fun journey just like Luke has been for both of us. And at the end of Genesis is the story of Joseph. Amazing Technicolor dream cut. You guys have seen it. And um, one of the last lines in the book of Genesis 
is Genesis or, or uh, Joseph's brothers who have sold him into slavery, beat him up, left him for dead. Come back and him and Joseph and his brothers have this interaction. And you guys remember, remember what Joseph says to his brothers? What you intended for evil, God intended for good. And as I was reflecting on all the things that I've learned from the Gospel of Luke, all the ways that I've been blessed, all the themes and how they've taken root in my life, I'm reminded again of a bunch of Pharisees, Sadducees, teachers of the law, who take a Messiah, beat him up, leave him for dead, kill him. Intentions of man, completely evil, riddled with hatred. And I'm, I imagine Christ looking down from the cross when he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, thinking the same thing. What you as men intended for evil, God intended for good. Redemption, purchased by the blood of Christ. Thought like men had him. We've killed him, it's over. Friends, it's time to surrender our intentions. The plan of God is all around us. The sovereignty of God is what is happening all the time. His plans and purposes are being carried out for His good and His namesake. And at the end of this entire journey, I implore you with me to finally put our hands in the air and say, God, our intentions, if left to ourselves, are 100% prideful. God, we surrender who we are and what we are to Your plan and Your purpose. What man intends for evil, God keeps reshaping and retooling to bring it all back to His glory. So wouldn't it be great if a bunch of people finally just said, you know, rather than like trying to create this tension between the sovereignty of God and us, why don't we just sit back and say, God, we just want to fall and surrender and be a Peter Simon when he's called. Away from me, I'm a sinful man. At the end of this Gospel of Luke, as we, as we look back on Genesis and how we've been affected by the Word... May we learn that God's plan is prevailing. Afterthoughts now. Every moment, every step, His plan prevails. Let's surrender. Let's keep going for it. Thank you, God, for the Gospel of Luke. Let's pray. Father, your word has breathed, spoken a tremendous amount through this gospel. And we ask, O oh God, that in these moments that we're humbled, we're encouraged, we're blessed to know you, to be able to call you Lord and to be able to approach the throne of God through the gospel of your blood. So Lord, I pray that you'll empower us now to surrender as the church, to completely give up, surrender our lives, and say, God, will you, by your sovereign plan, guide us, direct us, lead us. God, help us to hear your voice. 
whether it be a scream or a whisper, Father, will You tonight show us that Your plan prevails?